This Manapod podcast is sponsored by Mano Hemp Relief, the fast and effective way to relieve those sore muscles and achy joints. Get it now at manopause.com forward slash relief. Hi, and welcome to the Manapod podcast from manopause.com. And here, I'm Mike, and this is Larry. I'm Larry. And today we have the pleasure of speaking with A. Martinez. Now, Everybody knows who you are. If you've ever turned a television on or if you've ever watched a movie or, or been to a play, you have seen or we have all seen you uh, there in front of us for over 53 years. And we were talking about uh, stats before you came before you came on, and you actually have done over 1,600 episodes of Santa Barbara. Mm. blows my mind how any actor could do that in over yeah. eight years, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. And yeah, you, and you were in some of those, Mike. You I was, and I actually, I got to spend some time with you, believe it or not, um, yeah. on the set, and that you were great to me. I was just a little kid, and uh, so were you, actually, as I recall. So 53 years of work. Well, what a great dichotomy, you know? You were both on the same show. Right. He's a successful actor and you're not. Exactly. Amazing. I mean, it's really amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for that, Larry. But Julian here. <laughs> welcome, A. And and you um you also starred in Longmire and several movies and, and other television series. It, amazing career. So and it's it is amazing because you're only 49 and you've worked for 53 <laughs> years. So pretty good. I don't know how you did that, but that's acting, right? So welcome. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. That's very yes. kind of you, man. It's a pleasure to be here. You guys are cool. I love your your uh, site, and uh, and I love to get a, a chance to talk about you know my journey anytime I can. So, what are you up to now uh, in your life? What's what's well, happening now? Well, I uh, you know uh, this minute, like I, I guess I'm I'm back to my, my my main line, the bottom line, the norm of my career, which is that I'm looking for a job. Um, <laughs> you know, that that is really the nature of, of the acting career is like who can do a better job of constantly looking for a job. Um, you know, it, it, it's that, that's what I'm doing. I just finished, uh, 15 days ago, I finished a movie, a, a Michael Bay movie starring, uh, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and, Ooh, wow. uh, Yaha, 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 Yaya, who was just in, I just saw him last night in, um, in the trial of Chicago seven, uh, just, you know, a wonderful, uh, experience uh but again you know the, the the minute it's over it's like okay now what now what right yeah, and i got i got one other thing in the pipeline which is a, a show i did in uh, new zealand at the end of last year i was down there for 10 weeks i uh, had did an episode uh, of this new series that netflix is going to have coming on and and i'm not supposed to talk about it i signed a contract that says i won't talk about it until they talk about it first so i'm, so I'm waiting to talk about that but that's a really cool part i think that's one of the best parts i've ever had in my career and new zealand how cool was that it was so cool yeah oh yeah you know it's like you look at all those peter jackson movies and you think wow that place that looks amazing and you go there and yeah it is just the way it looks you know yeah, it was amazing. So another misconception about actors um, is um, most people think that if they see you on TV or in a movie, you must be loaded and life is great and you own Rolls Royces and live in you know 15 homes around the world and stuff like that. 
And I know that there's a tiny, tiny percentage of actors that make that kind of money. And the majority of other actors are, you know, they're, they're doing well, but it's like you say, I mean, they, they work for a living. They're no different than anybody else that works uh, at a job, you know, yes. except that their faces are on TV on the screen. Is that your experience? Yeah, that's, that's really well put, you know, I appreciate you saying it that way, Larry. I, yeah, I, uh, you know, I had uh, a period of time right around Santa Barbara and in the years afterwards where, you know, I was making really, really good money for a lot of years in a row. And uh, I basically uh, went all in on a piece of land and built a home and uh, got pretty well extended financially over that, but thinking, well, you know, I'm doing well. If I were even doing half as well, I'd be okay. Well, it turns out that, um, you know, I suddenly wasn't as young as I had been during those Santa Barbara years, and a pilot I did was not picked up. And uh, next thing you know, uh, wow, this is a tough year. And then the year after that is just brutal. Yeah. And I went, uh, I went literally in the course of uh, one year to another, uh, I actually, I, I, went, I made 10% in, this, in, one, in the year after the last good year. And then the next year, I made 10% of that, which wow. is sort of wow. 1% of what the good year was, right? So suddenly you have all these balls in the air, as we tend to have, you know, and I just got uh, slaughtered. And I never really have been able to, you know, get back to go from that. It was just, you know, you could say, people say real estate, you know, location, 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 right? <laughs> yeah. Built in a, the, the best street in the best neighborhood and one of the best towns in California. But when the, uh, the bottom fell out of the economy, mm. yeah, that place was not spared. And, you know, I needed to sell and I could not sell. There was nobody. I couldn't even get anybody to look. So was that when the interest rates were like 18%? Yeah, when interest rates were crazy, right? So and that was know, in the 80s then? Yeah, that, well, this was in... Uh, this was in the version of it that was, yeah, it wasn't that, that crash. It was oh, the, okay. in the, the 90s. Yeah, okay. Um, in fact, our neighborhood, uh, statistically, I looked this up out of morbid curiosity, and our neighborhood was, was among the very last in all of California to recover. Mm. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's, it, it's you know, and, and it's, it is, as you, as you say, it's a misconception. So many people, and a lot of people that, uh, get pissed at me in social media and like want me to, you know, shut up and stay in my lane and all that stuff. Shut up and dribble in LeBron's words. Right. <laughs> you know? It's like, you know, they say, why don't you, you know, why don't you just sit back and spend your money and <laughs> leave the rest of us alone? I'm thinking, dude, you know. I am the rest of us. Yeah. <laughs> I am the rest of us. And I don't have that money to spend. I'm right. like, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing well. You know, I, I, I've gone out a long time. My union has, uh, has pension plans. So, you know, I'm like, I'm not going to be in the streets, but you know, I'm, I'm struggling like everybody else. I carry a, I carry a, a, a burden financially that is hard to service. And, you know, I can't afford to like be laissez-faire about it. So right. well, and I, it's I think, a misconception. Yeah. And I think that's important information for people to know about uh, there's so many actors like you that they know yeah. and they don't realize that, you know what, they're just like you. They're, they're working, they're mm. pay, trying to pay a mortgage, they're trying to stay above water. You know, instead of getting fired, they just don't get rehired, but it's the same effect. Right. Exactly. So I think that's really important for people to know that you guys Absolutely. are all, you know, living high on the hog there. Yeah. My manager told me in a conversation we had, 
It was actually around the negotiation for this Michael Bay movie. He was saying, uh, yeah, I, I worked with this actor uh, one time, Robert Forster, who actually oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. passed away. I worked with him, actually. Great, great dude. He said, uh, I, I, I watched him at a public event. He was talking about his career and stuff, and he, he made the comment, you know, you know, you don't even know your career is in trouble until two years after the fact. You know, you think that the fact that the phone isn't ringing as often is just an anomaly in the, you know, it's like an ebb and flow in the, in, the, in the flow of time. But the truth is, you can have been decided to be done and no one tells you. <laughs> You're still thinking, oh, it's going to be okay. And that's at the root of, I think, a, a great fear that most actors have. And I know I do. And I, right. the fact that I don't have a job now is tempered by the fact that I got two jobs in the can. So I know that even if I'm considered to be kind of boring at this moment in time, hopefully one of those will like lend a little energy to right. back to the flow of things, you know? Well, and you know, oh, sorry. I mean, that's the same thing with menopause.com. We talk about that for people in general, changing careers or, or what I see in my practice as a plastic surgeon is I see a lot of men coming in, getting their eyes done or getting skincare or, Botox, because the 35-year-old guy behind them me. is biting at their ass to take their job, right? right. Yeah. And so it's the same kind of pressure where they're starting to feel like, oh, man, you know, I'm not the young buck anymore. Uh, they don't feel as good about me. The other person's cheaper because they're newer. So yeah. what you're talking about is going to be easily identifiable with a lot of our audience. Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, when I was going through your bio, I was noticing that you have worked with several friends of ours, and especially one that I absolutely adore. You starred in a short-lived series uh, called Cassie with Angie mm -hmm. Dickinson. How mm -hmm. was that working with Angie? I know you guys uh, look great together. I remember watching the shows. Yeah, I loved her. I got, you know, I got to say, you know, I think my most, the most anxiety I had about that gig was... Uh, I got hired as a guy who ran a gym and was supposedly like a real, um, you know, shredder in the gym. And, and I know that the guy that they were, the, the last two guys for the gig were me and this other guy who was literally, you know, 280 carved in granite, right? And I was thinking, <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to get this gig, right? But I did. I got the gig and I always felt a little bit... Um, you know, like a, just a slight bit like an imposter because, you know, I was supposed to be this real badass physical specimen and I was in shape and stuff and I'd been an athlete, you know, in my life, but I, I just wasn't that kind of guy. And I, I remember I was always like worried about how my costume made my body look and stuff. And, you know, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's not the best. Um, You're such a girl. <laughs> I know, I know. It's actors. That's one thing about actors. It's like, well, how, do I, how am I coming off? How do I look? You know. But uh, yeah, you know. But I loved Angie. She's she's just the sweetest, sweetest person. You know. She was just yeah. li literally kind and nice and charming and lovely. Mm -hmm. And smoking hot. And smoke. Well, just to say. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I tried yeah. to get her to admit it was something that it was a rumor for many, many years, and she still wouldn't cop to it. So I let it go. Mm. I just let it go. You probably know the rumor I'm talking about. I, I have a guess about it. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I know, I know. But but you got to give you know people credit for not you know talking out of school. Yeah, yeah no, I, I loved it, but yeah. she did wink at me. So okay, <laughs> I'll let that go. <laughs> so yeah. how, let's back up a little bit and and find out. 
what was what was what was it like your the early years of your career? What made you decide to go into acting, and then um, you know how was it building your career and getting those jobs? Well, uh, you know, it started. God, I was so lucky. You know, one thing you one thing you got to say about you know we can all say this about our lives about the good things that have happened is you know. I got so lucky in terms of who I met. And in my case, the first person was a teacher when I was in seventh grade. This woman was a professional. Her name was Ruth Anderson. She was a friend of mine until she passed on probably six years ago. But she, uh, she was a pro. She was a great uh, pianist. She played uh, piano for a lot of uh, fancy people in L.A. And she, she knew a lot of real A-list folks in Hollywood. You know, she just was just an elegant, wonderful person. And, and she had the foresight to realize that she should probably do something in her life that would lend her a pension. So she became a teacher. And, and luckily for me, she showed up in my junior high school, Mount Gleason Junior High School, and she set up this glee club and, and, and a choir. And she approached the principal. This dude's name was Lloyd Pranty, another guy with just, you know, open mind. And said, you know, I'd like to uh, expose the kids to musical theater. I'd like to do uh, many versions, you know, cut down versions of Broadway shows. And I go, ah, oh, sure, right? <laughs> you know, well, it turns out that she's a genius at doing this with kids, right? She found ways to get you to slow down and understand the subtext of things and actually perform in a way, though, even though you were green and, you know, you're playing grownups. The first show I did was The King and I. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm playing the crown prince. And, and at the end of the show, the prince is dying upstage and Anna is tending him. But all the things that she brought to the kingdom are now going to happen because the crown prince is telling the audience downstage at the end of the play that this is the way it's going to be. Women are no longer going to be treated like this. It's going to be a different time now. He's seeing all the things that she was hoping would happen. And at the end of that, uh, that performance, you know, uh, the, the, the room, the, the packed room in my junior high school in the auditorium was silent. And I had this moment of panic thinking, <laughs> I'm an emotional, I'm just fraught, right? And you know, my daddy is dying and I'm, and I'm feeling it, right? And, and, and there's silence thinking, oh, what have I done? And suddenly, boom, just this explosion of, um, of uh, applause. Wow. And then at backstage, there was a legendary guy in our family, this guy, this, bless his great heart, Eddie Arechiga, who hooked up with my daddy's little sister when she was very, very young, and they disappeared for a while. And uh, I remember my daddy and his brothers were like I, talking about finding this guy and doing stuff to him. And, you know, I, he was a legendary bad guy, you know, in my kind of he was just a tough guy. He was a Golden Gloves boxer, Purple Heart in Korea, lied his way into the Marine Corps when he was not yet 18. Badass guy. And he came backstage after that moment where the audience was all like, you know, stunned and then, you know, ecstatic. And I looked in his face and I thought to myself, that dude has been crying. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the hook goes in. Like, oh, okay, I want to do some more of this. Because, I can do yeah, this. Yeah. yeah, you know, storytelling that actually moves people. And that's yeah. at the heart of what addicts you to it. And, and you sang at the Hollywood Bowl when you were a kid. What was yeah, that? I sang, yeah, yeah, I sang a, a Harry Belafonte song, actually. And, 
Harry Belafonte turned out to be one of the great Americans of all time. And my daughter just gave me his biography for Christmas. But yeah, you know, so basically you get the hook because of something that happens to you. And then literally, we were talking about this the other day. I was I was thinking of studying political science at UCLA. And uh, because a teacher told me, I think you would be a good lawyer. And, And, you know, I was I was used to teachers saying bad things to me. And uh, the, 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 that teacher saying that made me think, well, I got to do that. So I'm, after <laughs> semester of high school, I'm, I'm ready to go. I, I'm in. You know, I got in. And they sent me a list of books to read before the first day of school. And there was 11 books. And they were big-ass books. And my friend, uh, Ben, uh, he actually, uh, who, with whom I was going to uh, room at UCLA, he got a list from the theater department because he was going as an actor. And they said, you need to write a 500-word story about yourself for the first day of school. And I'm thinking, I got to read these 11 books. And he got a 500-word story about himself. <laughs> what, what, what am I doing wrong here? And so I changed. And it was the last semester that you could do that. It was the last year where the UCLA Theater Department was accessible to people deciding to try to get in at the last minute. So I got in. Wow. And that allowed me to actually have a career. Wow. That, that's great. That's a great story. Are you tired of sore muscles, swollen legs, and achy joints, especially when you exercise or have a long day? Larry and Mike here to tell you about a revolutionary new product that will change your life. That's right. It's called Green Drop Compression Gear, a new type of compression gear that's infused with herbal ingredients that fight inflammation and speed your recovery from exercise or daily activities. Unlike other compression garments that can feel tight or hot, Green Drop Compression Gear has the ideal amount of compression combined with camphor and wintergreen to soothe those tired muscles. Ooh, that sounds nice. And it works. Larry and I use the elbow, knee, and sock compression, and they're amazing. And the infused herbal ingredients will last for over 40 wash cycles. Manipause friends, you need to try these. Green Drop Compression Gear. Get them now on manopause.com forward slash green drop. They're a game changer. So after UCLA, you, um, you, you, did you get a job right away that pulled you out of there or, or did you start looking around? Or no, I was actually in an, in an acting class. Uh, I met, you know, I met another, I met a great teacher, a man named Louis Palter, still teaching. In fact, my daughter has just been studying with him these wow. last couple of years. Wow. Uh, and Ruth Anderson, who was my mentor in junior high school, actually came to see my other daughter in a play in high school and, and stood under a tree with her when the show was over and counseled her, you know. And I just, you know, it, it's such a gift to, to, to bump into people that care about you and are willing to mentor you and then to have the added gift of knowing them through the years, you know. But I'm sitting in Lewis Palter's improvisational acting classes where I began to learn to act. We, did, we sat in a circle and we would, we would jump. Someone would suddenly just jump someone else and want something from him. That person would say no, since you have conflict and drama. Uh, it's a, he came down from his uh, roots in New York with Sandy Meisner and the Stanislavski stuff. And, you know, li- real legit stuff. Acting is doing. What do you want, right? So I'm in this class, and I was real shy. And um, I didn't, I didn't um, initiate any jumps, but three of my 
fellow classmates jumped me. And so I got to do three different stories in the course of these two hours. And I didn't know, but there was a casting director named Fred Roos, who was in the Copa. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Fred Roos. Mm-hmm. He was sitting up in the up, up in the top row of this theater in the round in the dark, and no one knew he was there. And so he comes down after the class and says, hey, man, I'm looking for somebody like you to be in this movie. Uh, you know, we're, it's an AI, AIP movie, you know, American International Pictures, those B movies. And says, so, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, who is this guy and what is this scam? You know, this can't be real. But he sent me to meet uh, Maury Dexter, who was the director of it. And, you know, two weeks later, I'm in Tucson, Arizona, shooting a movie. Wow. I mean, literally, I just was minding my own business as a student, and, and that happened to me. So, wow. you know. It's like Lana Turner at Rexall Drugs, right? I mean, it's the same <laughs> kind, kind of the kind of kind of same. Same. There you go. Yeah, yeah you must have a nice up here or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, so who were some of your... Who were some of your existing actor inspirations when you got into acting? Like, who was it? It's like, I, I love that guy. I would want to, I would want to act like him mm. or her. Well, you know, certainly, um, certainly De Niro, uh, you know, uh, Pacino, you know, certainly, uh, I think uh, Javier Bardem, you know, uh, I mean, that came later, but uh, from the get, you know, watching De Niro and stuff. And, and I did get to work with, I worked with Anthony Quinn and Montalban on uh, television shows back in the day. And um, I worked with Edward James almost in a show. It was the first time that a lot of uh, actors of color, uh, you know, actually got to work together because it was a, a project called Seguin for American Playhouse. I played uh, this character, Juan Nepomuceno Seguin, who was the first mayor of San Antonio, uh, you know, and, and like a, really a hero to uh, the Tejano people. Um, and in, in telling his story, there were all these parts for all these, uh, these Hispanic actors. And of course, we were used to having there be one part or two parts and we'd meet each other at auditions, see each other and, you know, we'd one of us would win and everybody else would right. lose. But suddenly we're on location in uh, Brackettville, Texas at uh, Happy Shahan's uh, mock-up of the Alamo. He rebuilt the Alamo as a tourist attraction there. And, uh, and we all got to be on location for a month and got to be friends. Wow. So that was an right. awesome experience. And Eddie almost played Santana, you know, the, the nemesis from the old country. And he was... He was just, you know, astonishing. He had like, you know, minimal screen time and he just like tore a hole in the middle of the movie with how intense and terrifying he was. So, you know, that was that was the thing, you know, just we finally got to work with each other and get to know each other. But over the years, I I just uh, I just think of it all the time now as as a golden age. Uh, You can't help but learn how to act well if you if you pay attention to all these movies that are being made, mm-hmm. you know, once the revolution with Brando and the, the move to naturalism and stuff, now you actually get to see the connection between what happens on screen in a story and what happens in real life. You see it real clearly now. And of course, over the early years, I, I saw Meryl Streep and I went, Oh, <laughs> oh that's something else altogether. Yeah. And, uh, and she became, to this day, she is where I set the bar. There's a lot of great, great actors. I think I just saw Anthony Hopkins in The Father the, this week, and I was 
astonished. Yeah. But Meryl Streep, and I, I actually got an audition for this character um, uh, in, in the movie Silkwood, and which Mike Nichols directed. And I went and did the audition, and you know, it seemed really. He seemed really like he liked what I did, and um, and then nothing. Heard nothing. Heard nothing. 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 And then six weeks later, when I've committed to do something else, I'm actually testing for a show on ABC. He sends uh, a message to my agent. Okay, we want A to do this part, and my agent, instead of stalling because I was unavailable for Friday through through uh, Sunday, instead of stalling, he like um, he. Uh, he decided to, um, you know, fight him on it, you know, to like criticize him for like waiting so long. Oh, and this is, is my Nichols. Your right. former agent, right? Yes, my former agent. And, and the dude was really good to me. He was really good to me. You know? But he, I, I, and my fantasies about this, and of course I don't know if it's true, but my fantasies about this always were that he had to eat so much shit over the years that he finally, you know, so he had a moment where he just snapped. Yeah. And he sent him a telegram, you know, representing me that I just thought was, not only did I think, well, there, uh, there goes my chance of working with Meryl Streep. Yeah, right. But, but I actually, I've like, I've burned a hole in the Mike Nichols possibility going forward. So later, I got asked to do She Devil. And, uh, and so I got to actually go back and be in the realm of Meryl Streep, which has always been a dream come true. Once you have a hero, you know, you, you pray you'll get a chance to get close to him. So that was an extraordinary experience. And, and to this day, you know, I just, I just watch everything she does twice at least. Mm -hmm. So I can find it. And I try to um, just hold, you know, what it, what it is she does beyond the gift of the, of the story she's given. What does she do? I remember being on the set of She Devil and we would shoot 20 takes of everything. We'd shoot 10 takes before the director would even say anything. So she's just, Take after take after take, and every one of them you could just put it in the movie. They're just wonderful, right? And every one of it is a little bit different. She's not even changing the words, and they're different. Um, and you know, I'm sitting there. I got, I got five or six ideas, maybe. But by take fifteen, I am, I'm recycling. <laughs> I'm, I'm done. And, you know, and it, it made me feel a little bit sad <laughs> about myself. But, um, but that's her. You know, she just. And plus, she was an exquisite host. I'll just tell one more story. This is about, you know, someone you, you look up to and you just think. We're on the set one day and we're doing, it, we're, I'm in a swimming pool in a Speedo, you know, like a real skin tight. And I'm like, I'm like supposed to be the butler, but I am not doing nothing right. I'm, I'm mad at her because she brought Ed, Ed Bagley home to spend the night. I'm her gigolo butler, basically. <laughs> so, so there's this complicated shot in the in the in this indoor swimming pool in a tent on Long Island. And there's like 150 people in the room, 200 people. And this the focus puller made a mistake on one of the tracking shots, and uh, and the director just went off on this guy, just just went off. And you know, again, someone who's been building up a certain level of frustration about something just finds a way to vent it. And this poor guy just you know. So that's 11.30 or so. We break for lunch. We come back in the afternoon, probably 4.30 or so, probably five hours later. We're doing another shot. And it's a complicated shot, nothing too major, but it's fairly complicated. You know, a lot of dollies and, you know, moving the focus. And Merrill, after the shot, called him by name and said, hey, man, great, great job with that. Way to, way to nail that. You know, just let it lay there in the air. And at that point in time, I don't think anybody in that room remembered the morning except that dude and her. 
And she made it her business as the host of her set to, to let him know that uh, she was was aware of what happened, you know, and wanted to give him some love and like, you know, take the stink off of that moment. Yeah. Right. What a class, class thing to do. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. It's amazing. Hey, let me ask you. So we know about your acting career and you've shared some great stories with us, but we don't know about your baseball career. (laughs) Um, Semi-pro baseball player for years. And that leads to another great story that we want you to tell about Sandy Koufax. But tell oh. us about your semi-pro baseball. Well, you know, I, I got I always wanted to be a baseball player. You know, I, I just I, I grew up playing baseball. It's funny because my 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 father had nothing to do with it. He was a tennis player, and he just he didn't like to like play baseball. And I, but somehow when I was a little kid, him and my grandfather and me all went to see the Angels in L.A. and Wrigley Field in L.A. back when there was a minor league team called the Angels. And even though I was a little kid, I remember that just, I just thought that was the magical night. So I fell in love with baseball and, uh, and I wanted to play baseball, but, you know, I, I made the mistake of running cross country in the first year of high school and then the, then the pressure for the cross country runners to go into the track team and run, run the mile and stuff was, you know, I couldn't get out from that. I finally tried to cheat my way over to it and the baseball coach was going to take me and the track coach intervened and, and <laughs> kiboshed the deal. <laughs> I never, you know, so that was pretty heavy. So anyway, I was like a frustrated baseball player. So so my brother heard about this, uh, this California Baseball Association uh, that, was, uh, that was run in Los Angeles. A guy named Steve Macias was running this league. And it had a lot of players from Mexico coming up here to, and getting involved. Some businesses that were involved with, you know, sponsoring guys to come up. And some guys that used to be in the big leagues were playing on it. And some kids that had a future were playing in it. And so we, I, I got a, uh, I got a, uh, I tried out for a team on that thing and I played for a season for a team called the Pirates in that league. But I really didn't like the, the vibe of the, of, the, of the team. So my brother and me decided we'll make our own team. So we like petitioned the league. Could we get a charter to make a team and put up the money and do the thing? So we did it and we got, and we got in and we, we played for five seasons. We were the Tahunga Tarantulas. And <laughs> Tarantula, tar, tarantula is, is, a, is a euphemism for female pubic hair in certain, uh, in certain, you know, certain kind of realms. So it, it was in a, in a, league that was, a league that was like was Hispanic dominated. We got, we got, we were the, la- they, people just thought we were the funniest thing. That's great. And- Larry and Mike here to tell you about a great product that's saving relationships across the country. The company is called Manscaped, and their lawnmower is the grooming system for those private areas that look like a briar patch. That's right. Get yours at manopause.com and get 20% off with Manopause20. The code is Manopause20. The whole family will thank us. You ready, Larry? I'm ready. Let's do it. In our fourth season, we won the championship. Wow. And, um, and, and, of course, then everybody wanted to be on our team now. We're not the laughing stock anymore. And we brought in a couple guys that were superstars in the league that, you know, we just, like, brought them onto our team, and they killed our team. It's like you know, one of the things we realized, and you see this now in the big leagues even, it's like what is the chemistry of the group, right? Yeah. So, so we blew that. Anyway, baseball. So I'm, 
I'm, uh, I'm, fit, I, I'm a little kid. My mom says, oh, go look at the paper. I'm seven years old. She says, look at the paper. And it's, I pick it up. No, the sports page. So I look it up and it said, they're our bums now. And the Dodgers are coming to Los Angeles. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I had heard of the Dodgers because they beat the Yankees in 1955. I didn't realize that it was the first time in 12 tries that they beat the Yankees. I just thought they must be great because they could beat the Yankees. So then they came to L.A., it turns out my uncle Jimmy was playing uh, in their minor league system. He was playing up in Spokane and AAA. Could never make the jumps to the big leagues because he couldn't hit a big league curveball. But he got me tickets to go see uh, the, the World Series in 59 at, at, uh, at the Coliseum. Wow. And a few years later, I got my driver's license. And I was, you know, all in with the Dodgers. And, uh, and I, in, in the summer of 65, I drove to every one of Sandy Koufax's starts and he pitched every fourth game and, and bought a ticket, just walked up to the thing, bought a ticket by myself and went and sat. And on September 9th, the ticket I bought was the best I got of all of them. It was on the blue seats above the Dodger dugout in the first frigging row, right next to a camera well, then this first row of seats looking down on the Dodger dugout. And I'm sitting in the first row of watching Sandy pitch, right? Um, this is the this is the game where famously uh, I think it was Glenn Beckert walked away from after the first inning and said hey, oh, he ain't got much tonight. But anyway, <laughs> he threw his fourth no hitter. It was his only perfect game. He threw uh, so hard at the end of the game. Uh, he stopped using his curveball. He, he threw nothing but fastballs. Ernie Banks was the only Cub to touch the ball. He nicked one and it went straight back into the screen. Last six guys all struck out, fastballs thrown so hard, his hat would pop off his head sometimes. Wow. They closed the concession stands. The place was hushed before every pitch. When you'd throw another strike, people would jump up and smash into each other. It was like a mosh pit. I thought, I got I to gotta watch out. I don't want to go over this railing and be down. Then the yellow seat's down below, you know. <laughs> Just an overwhelming emotional experience, and he, and he brought it home. Wow. So you watched a guy go beyond his normal capabilities. And he said as much later, he threw as hard as he ever thrown. And, you know, two years later, his arm was shot. But, but I, so I, you know, I I had that in my life, you know, the greatest experience of my, the life as a sports fan, for sure. And, and basically on a lot of levels, you know, faith in, can it happen? Yes, it can happen. Yes. So, so you know, I'm, I'm, you know, meanwhile, years later, I think this was like, uh, I don't remember when it was. It was like 38, 9, 40 years ago. I'm, I'm losing my house in the Palisades. The women I've been living with, we're split up. She wants half the money out of the house. The house is a construction site. That's one of the reasons we had to split up, I'm sure. I'd taken all the walls down, was putting, <laughs> putting up, you know, redwood paneling. I didn't know anything. I was reading out of a book, you know, how to do things. My brother it's was- the redwood paneling, by the, the way. redwood That's paneling. That's what did it. <laughs> That's what did it, the, the smell. <laughs> I mean, but I mean, it was just like living in chaos, right? Because I got this thing. Wouldn't it be cool if the house was like a redwood cabin, right? So- um, that's the problem with actors, you know, no, no, no common sense filter. So no, no, no reasonable sense of deniability. So, so I start doing this stuff and then, you know, I'm there and my agent calls, Oh, there's a, there's a, there's a movie at AFI. There's, and they want you for the lead. It's a ex cop, a Houston narcotics cop. It's a true story, tragic story, but they want you for the lead. I hey, dude, I can't, I'm in the middle of nothing. I can't do a gig for free for a month with, with my life in ruins. And I'm, you know, under this terrible pressure, he goes, well, you should read it. So, 
So I read it and there's a scene in the movie where my character is riding in his father's pickup truck with his father and he talking about watching Sandy Koufax pitch. Oh my. Okay, and now this is written by a guy who gets baseball and who gets Sandy Koufax. So I'm like, oh my God, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm weeping. I, I go to my brother and I say, dude, look at this, man. He goes, he reads it, he goes, well, you've got to do this. And I go, well, we, how can I leave you here? He says, man, leave me here. I'll cover it. I'm good. Because remember, if you don't do this, this movie, some other actor is going to get to say that scene. And you're never going to be able to forget that. So you've got to do the movie. So I thought, well, damn, dude, you're my, you're my man. And he is he's my, he's my brother, you know. So bless his heart. So, so <laughs> flash forward like two weeks later, I'm in East L.A. getting ready to shoot the movie. And I'm walking up a sidewalk up a hill, and then you walk down a little, little uh, you, you take a hard left and go down the walkway to the front door. And I'm seeing these people in front of me, some of the crew people and another actor. And, and I see three or four people ahead of me. I see this hair just sort of bouncing like this as this person strides. And then she turns and goes in front of me like that. And she's uh, wearing a white T-shirt and blue jeans and white socks under sandals. The reason for that was she just had had surgery on her toes and she didn't want to do the movie, but the director was crushing on her and he insisted that she do the movie. So she reluctantly signed on to do the movie with her feet in agony. And of course I showed up because my brother said I had to do it because of the Colfax moment. And I'm, I'm there in the thing and we're doing the movie and I, you know, the director has no money. And so anytime you don't fall on your face, that's going to be the take. And I'm thinking, I need another take. And he goes, no, man, it's fine. That was fine. And I started noticing that she, this woman behind the camera, when I would like need another take, she would start to say things, you know, I don't think that was good for camera. I think camera needs another one. And of course, then he had to give me another take. <laughs> right. And I realized later she was actually intervening on my behalf. So flash forward. That woman uh, became my wife, Leslie, who's the mother of our we? children. And we, you know, we've been married more than, I think, 37 years now. And wow. Because of Sandy Koufax, my love. Destiny. That was yes. destiny. What a, that's yes. such a great story. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, yeah you're welcome. That's yeah. awesome. So, um, you know, stories and, and, um, uh, actors and, and themes uh, change on a regular basis in Hollywood. You, you know, whether you're talking about the kind of movies that were made in the 30s and 40s, the film noir, you know, the peace movement movies and all that kind of stuff. So that changes. But, and we, we've sort of touched on this before, is, uh, you know, this is a, a finally, I think, a permanent wave of actors of every background and ilk getting the opportunity to play any role that, that, you know, they're capable of playing as an actor. Mm. Um, but in the past, you know, uh, guys like Ricardo Montalban and Cesar Romero and those guys, they were back in the day, they were considered elegant, intelligent, uh, sophisticated. They were, they got starring roles as Latino actors. And mm. then for a while, the only, the only roles it seemed like Latino actors could get were drug dealers or, or thugs or gang members or something. And now it's beginning to change again. So how, how do you see that ebb and flow and where do you see it going now? 
Well, you know, I, uh, it's true. It is an ebb and flow, and it seems like it's a it's a constant kind of uh, push and pull over how we're gonna how we're gonna how to what degree are we gonna reflect uh, society realistically in our storytelling? And I and I do think that that what's happening now is reflective of what's going on in the larger culture. And of course, from person in my position, it's like so long overdue and so welcome. I'm just so thrilled about it. I had a T-shirt. I think it was for the 80s. It's a decado del hispano. You know, this is the Hispanic decade in the 80s. I'm thinking, hmm, <laughs> sure, you know, I could probably recycle this shirt and just change the, the numbers on there, right? But, you know, you see it, uh, you see it all the way. I, I you know, the, the story always was that the explanation, the excuse was, well, you know, people won't come out and see movies that are headlined by people of color. I remember, I remember going in to see Black Panther after it had been out three weeks, my, my, my son and I, I wanted to see it a second time uh, with my son. I'd seen it opening night and I wanted to go back and see it uh, again with him. And the theater was packed. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and you look at the, the box office that did, you look at that movie Coco, you know, the animation, right. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, a massive hit. So apparently that really wasn't a real concern, you know, in a, in a, in a culture, in a society that has all these people of color, you know, that are like every other human being, always interested in stories that reflect them to themselves. Well, I think a little, a little bit of it was made up because your friend uh, and somebody Mike knew as well, Henry Darrow, just yeah. recently passed away. And I remember when I was, when I was younger, I was, I was still kind of a kid when High Chaparral came out mm. and he played Monolito. Right. Monolito was the hit of the show. Right. Yes. Everybody, if he wasn't in the episode, next. <laughs> seriously, he made the show. That's really and, true. And, and, and so the whole thing was like, okay, well, so what do you mean that people won't watch a show if it has, you know, a Hispanic or an African-American or whatever? Look why people are watching High Chaparral. The stories right. weren't that great, but this character of Mono made it so good yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody wanted to watch, especially boys. Yeah, exactly. It's so true. You know, and ironically, you know, he uh, he had, you know, come, he'd gone to New York and he'd come out to L.A. and gone to Pasadena Playhouse and started, you know, studying seriously. And he was doing a lot of theater. He was, you know, bona fide actor. And and he uh, got tired of the fact that all he was getting to audition for were like, you know, the gardener or the bad guy or the this and then. Right. He, basically decided that his career would benefit from changing his name from Delgado to Darrow. And he did that after David Dortort, who, who created Chaparral and Bonanza. Bonanza, yeah. Had come and seen him on stage and he was, you know, doing some serious stage play and uh, Dortort was incredibly impressed with him and went looking for Delgado and couldn't find him because <laughs> Henry turned into Darrow. And it took them, it took him a long time in, in Henry's retelling of the story. You know, it took, he walks in to meet him finally. He says, dude, I've been looking for you for a long time. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, when you look at Henry's uh, IMDb page, uh, you do notice that he got to play a lot of characters that did not have his, Hispanic surnames. Yeah. So in a way, that, that strategy paid off for him. And it's a yeah. sad commentary that you've got to pretend to yeah. be something or not to be considered. And, you know, I, I, I just, you know, I, I, feel, I feel, you know, like a, a mixed about it, about the, the wisdom of doing stuff like that. I mean, a lot of people have changed their names, not just for ethnic reasons, but, you know, just to, you know, be more cool on some level. Right. But it's, I think it's, it really does seem like it's changed, uh, you know, hopefully 
it's just changed. You know, right. it's, uh, it, yeah. it's, it's no longer possible to make the argument, well, nobody cares about these stories if it's not, if it's not always, all, you know, set up to favor the European uh, dominance of the culture. You know, it's like, you know, we, everybody gets that. That's, that's, you know, that's the water we've been swimming in. You know, we don't even see it as water. We're in it. Where fish, you know, what does a fish think about water? You know, it's like, well, I don't know what it is. But, you know, it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's changed. And I, I feel thrilled about it. You know, I mean, I, my problems personally are the fact that I'm so widely mixed blood. Uh, you know, I got basically my daddy's family was in this giant pool of people that, that, that were living on this continent before they drew the line between Texas and Mexico. You know, all up through Oklahoma and all down through northern Mexico, this massive array of people that were, you know, sharing the same uh, culture and, you know, language relationships and stuff. And, and then, you know, in the middle of nowhere, this line gets drawn and now suddenly you're, you're, you're Mexicans and you're uh, indigenous Americans and stuff. And, and uh, you know, it's like uh, it's, it's eased up now. People are finally realizing that it's stupid to draw these lines, but there's just been a tremendous kind of uh, – uh, of urge for quite a few years to declare, okay, what are you? You know, what are you? What is your, what does your blood say about you? Right. And when you have to say that, well, my blood says I'm this and that I've got these indigenous lines in me. I've got these lines from, you know, that are considered now considered Mexican. I got this from over in Europe, you know? So basically uh, if I have to conform to like the DNA test, I never get to work. I should be denied. <laughs> you know, basically, you don't. I don't fit anywhere. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm never. I'm never the go-to solution. So, uh, you know, that's my little private. Uh, so it must of, be your talent that has uh, has made you successful. Well, you know, I, I say the only time in my career that I got to play characters that were not written for someone for a person of color was in the in the years immediately following Santa Barbara, which had become an international hit. Right. That was the, that was the great hidden blessing in Santa Barbara, which I was too stupid to want to even do when I was offered it. But but is that it, this uh, this company, New World International, which is based by the filmmaker Roger Corman, he he'd made this company to distribute his movies. Right. And, and New World had the had the rights to Santa Barbara. They, they made the deal to do that show so they could farm this show out all over the world and charge a nickel for an episode. Right. Beautiful Southern California uh, glamour, and everyone would buy that, right? And then after a hundred shows, now nah, it's going to cost a dime. And the next ten, you know, they just, you know, it's like first one's free, kind of. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. And so, you know, so that I was suddenly, you know, Santa Barbara gave me a profile all over the world, and uh, I, I remember I went went to Russia, and and I remember thinking, uh, you know, most of the people loved the fact that the relationship I was in with Marcy Walker the great Marcy Walker, that that was the thing that made my character special. But in Russia, they loved my character because he was an honest cop. He was somebody that wasn't corrupt. Yeah. Hmm. But he, he resonated all over the world. They just yeah. wrote this gleamingly great character, and I got to play him. So when after that show was over, suddenly I'm going up for uh, Sheriff Williams. And, uh, you know, <laughs> and, you know. And, uh, uh, but why not, right? I mean, right. You, look, you look at some of these old movies, even like, in Bonanza, the early years of Bonanza, and it's sad. It's sadly funny now when you see them interacting with Indians. Oh it yeah, seems like almost all the Indians are these Jewish guys from Brooklyn, right? <laughs> and, and it's <laughs> like that doesn't. It doesn't look. Doesn't sound like an Indian, you know. And then thank God now we have Hamilton, which right. which flips everything on its head. 
So right. everybody, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, mm. Alexander Hamilton, they're all minority actors mm. playing mm. these American icons. Right, right, and right. it's just blowing it everything just, away. And it works. Yeah, you know, it, it works. Absolutely yeah, works. It works. I know. It's so great. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It's good to see, you know, it's good to see it. You know, the bottom line is, is like, okay, this person can do that. And not only can do it, but can excel doing it. So I and guess. You can, and you can visualize them if they're good enough actors. The color, uh, ethnicity goes away. Completely goes away. It's like, no, that's really George Washington that's singing right. there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. It's a great blessing. So where do you see yourself 10 years from now? What, what's A. Martinez going to be doing? Um, well, I'm, I, I, uh, what I'm noticing, I'm going to recommend, uh, and I'm going to actually write about this, but uh, I'm going to recommend you guys see The Father because I think everybody involved. I tried to watch it last night, and it's not on Netflix right now. So yeah, you know, they yeah they withdrawn it. I had to I had to get it through the Screen Actors Guild. They they you know he's up for Best Actor in, in the SAG Awards, so we get to there's a there's a code you can use to see it. But, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's the issue as, you know, as we, as we go through the cycle of our lives, we get to the point where we're actually more, more like we were as babies. And, you know, I, I, um, you know, my, uh, my father-in-law had Alzheimer's and uh, we, we dealt firsthand with watching, uh, with managing his, uh, his descent through that. In fact, we, I learned something really useful by, by him going through that. I, I learned about this substance phosphatidylserine it's a it's a it's a fatty acid you know that that is profuse throughout all neural tissue in the human body but starts to um starts to kind of diminish as you get older and we bought some of that for him because we noticed that when he came over if we gave him a couple of capsules of phosphatidylserine you know he sort of had a better evening and I started using it uh when I turned 50 and and I'd been on Santa Barbara and my memory was like mega sharp. And then I was away from daytime for a while and I came back on, set, on General Hospital and suddenly I'm going, damn, how did I ever remember a whole show? Every day? <laughs> and, uh, and so I thought, I better do something about that. So I actually started taking that and it really, it's been a godsend. Oh, wow, I've, 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 you know, recommended it to a lot of actors. But, you can go for the counter? Uh, yeah, yeah. You, you get it in uh, the, uh, get it on, on Amazon, you know. Uh, I buy Gerald brand. It's an Israeli company and, uh, and I love it. And I take... Huh. I take uh, 1,500 megs a day. Anyway, I, you know, I, here I, I, I apologize for being so damn long-winded. I don't, I don't know what it is. No, 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 no. Well, I want to know about that stuff. Well, that's a good thing, right? But it, yes, you just said that. But yeah, as nah, 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 nah. <laughs> I know. Where's my watch? That's a, that's a bit in the father that you'll really love. Uh, but, um, what, but, what, you know, I, it's a long way of saying, you know, I – I feel myself, uh, you know, losing acuity over time. You know, I, I, I feel myself, um, you know, kind of uh, becoming uh, challenged to perform at the same level that I'm accustomed to performing and on all levels, on all levels of life. Yeah. So when you flash ahead 10 years ago, well, I think, I think what's, you know, what I'll be doing has a lot to do with uh, how well I can hold on to as much of my health as, as, as possible, you know, and I work really hard at it. Yeah. I heard you guys, yeah, one of your podcasts, uh, that dude, the, the bodybuilder guy that was talking to you guys about, you know, just get up and start moving around, you know? Right. right. I know I do that. You know, I, I make skip. Yeah. 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 I just get up and move around. And, uh, you know, and I, I had a really wonderful experience in, um, 
in New Zealand, another accident, happy accident. You know, I'm, I've, I've lifted weights since I was, you know, 19. And, um, and I, I was going to New Zealand for 10 weeks. I thought, what am I going to do, you know? And uh, I thought, well, I could maybe buy some down there or maybe I could have them shipped. And I'm, you know, all this irrational stuff. And my daughter, thank God for smart kids, she says, well, why don't you get some exercise bands? And I'm thinking, well, well yeah, but I'm, I'm a weightlifter. He goes, oh, well, you should try that. So I got these, you know, they cost 30 bucks. Right. And you buy a little bag and it's got the, you know, it's got the light one and the medium, the, you know, five bands. And you basically just like stick a, stick a fob in the, at the hinge of your door and then attach this band to it. And you can do millions of exercises that they don't weigh anything. And, and it, whereas like when you're doing curls, you know, like when you get to, when you get to this, this is the hardest part of the thing. And once you're past the sticking point, now it gets easier. Right. And right. now you, this is the hard part. So what you can th- get through there is, is really the, the work. Oh yeah. Look at those guns. Yeah. It, this white shirt makes it look bigger than it is. <laughs> also getting close to the camera, but, but with, with the, with the, with the, with the, with the cord, every inch of the, of the stroke gets harder and harder and harder and harder. So you basically get this longer throw through your muscle. And I swear to God, I got stronger uh, in the 10 weeks in New Zealand uh, doing this thing that I was so terrified. I, I, I you know, cause you I know, couldn't. You know who really that. promoted those early on years Jack ago? LaLanne. Was Jack LaLanne. Jack mm-hmm. LaLanne. He did. Really? He did. Oh, that was yeah. his thing. Is, My know, dad had weights. those. Yeah. You do yeah. The, You do the exercise bands. And like you say, there's a lightweight, there's a yeah. big weight, there's the heavy weight. You can combine them if you're getting strong enough. And he said, yeah. that's the thing is you feel the, you feel the resistance all the way up. Mm-hmm. Cool. Love it. You know, yeah. and I, so that I recommend totally. And I think that's like a, a real, uh, you know, it's a benefit to just, you know, keeping, you know, and plus you can feel that it's, that it's, you know, when you, when you, when you're standing on the cords and you're doing curls, you can feel the pressure through your skeleton. You can feel that you're asking your bones to do the work. Because, I mean, obviously, the great benefit of weightlifting, I think, more than anything, is the way it keeps your bones from hollowing yep. it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So this will do that. So, yeah, that's – anyway, yeah. I'm hoping I can I cannot become, you know uh, – Frail. Frail. And, and uh, you know, both mentally and physically. Because, obviously, uh, to continue to be able to act – is uh, it, it's an athletic um, uh, activity, and uh, and and the thinking of it is really challenging. You know the, the work. Well, of- nobody's get, nobody's going to think, and and you're not shy about this. Nobody's going to think that you're 72 years old. Yeah, and yet I am. I know, but you look like you're in your early 50s. I mean, you really, really do. And so, so yeah. you're, whatever you're doing is working, and that's the kind of message we're trying to pass on our menopause audiences you can do it you just yeah. gotta stay at it you gotta think young you gotta keep the mind working go yeah. after your passion and that kind of thing and, yeah. and so we have we have a series of questions that we stole from james lipton you know for the actor studio about cool. uh, that, that he used to ask we kind of pared it down a little bit mm. but the first question is what's your favorite curse word fuck <laughs> what's your least favorite curse word it makes you cringe if you hear it. <laughs> or he can't say it. He won't say it. His wife is probably over to the right or the left. No, I really, that's a really good question. I, I, I don't know that I even have one. I, I just love curse words. Yeah. You know, I think, yeah. you know, I, and, one of the, and I love getting to be in, in movies where you can say fuck. I just love right. that. Yeah. Make it more real. Yeah. 
I got to say fuck once. Just I, I did a scene with Dean Stockwell, and it was one of my big scenes with with somebody who was well known, right? And I got to say, this isn't the fucking Wild West anymore. It was so great. <laughs> and just you were to on, be you able were on to the set, you were on the uh, still feels good. You showed me that. Oh clip. my god! I, I remember. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was so cool. cool. So yeah. yes, you're right. Yeah. So so uh, <laughs> another question is which is a paraphrase of his, is if you could go back to yourself when you were 24, 25 years old, what would you tell yourself about any changes or any, anything that you should do that you didn't do in a timely fashion or didn't do at all? What, what advice would you give yourself at 25 if you could go back? Um, I, I, would, I would probably give myself the advice of, you know, uh, don't be so cavalier about wasting time. Uh, you know, I think I wasted a lot of time. I, uh, I smoked uh, a shit ton of pot. I did a lot of blow and, uh, and I, oh, basically, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I mean, I, I, you know, not only did I did behind the blow, I actually feel like I risked my life. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but I actually behind the pot, I just think I, um, you know, I just like dulled my, uh, I, I just, I just dulled myself. My sense of humor went to shit. You know, I just, I hadn't, I, I lost, I lost so much of, you know, kind of the light just cause I, my, I remember thinking that my dad was really pissed at me that I, that he found out I smoked pot and I was thinking, well, any, it's not addictive. So don't talk to me about that. You drink coffee every morning. Yeah. And, you know, the truth is it, it is addicting psychologically. I, I was, I was toward the end of my marijuana smoking tenure. I would find myself in the same position every damn night. I'd be sitting in a corner somewhere in a corner of a room with a roach clip clutching it like so hard that I would feel like I was vibrating thinking, what am I doing here? What, 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 why am I here doing this again? These last few tokes are stinky, gooey, tar infested crap. What the? Yeah. So I wish I wouldn't have spent so much time like smoking pot. Yeah. As much as I love pot. And I think, right. and I'll say that psychedelics have been like one of the great godsends of my life. You know, yeah. I've done acid a lot. I've done, uh, I've done uh, mushrooms and I, you know, I think those things actually were, profoundly enhancing to a degree that I can't really articulate actually. Hmm. Yeah. I got a, I got a story if it's worth another, uh, oh, of course. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I did, uh, is the first time I did acid and, and the story was that it was Owsley acid. And, um, uh, I was with some friends of mine up in St. Helena in the uh, wine country and, uh, we were going on a midnight hike. And so we dropped this, uh, Owsley blotter acid and, uh, we're walking, you know, and I, I had, I, I'd been smoking pot. Gateway drug was pot for me, and so I, I, I'd been smoking pot, and I maybe, maybe only had, had my first couple of beers within the first few months before that. So I was like going into like consciousness changing, but I'm walking on this thing, and we're on this trail, and I'm starting to go, oh Jesus, I'm feeling a little bit bad. I'm starting to feel like faint and weak in the knees, and I don't even know what to think about this, and I. It's a full moon, full moon, chose the full moon. I come around this corner on this trail up in, up in uh, St. Helena, and there's an open opening. It's designed to open into this rest, restful place. And across from me is a stone, and it's a cube. And in the moonlight, it looks white. And it's roughly, say, 14 by 14 by 14, just a giant cubic white rock. Huh. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> need that. 
and I walked across the space and hit that rock and put my cheek against it and just laid my arms out and just like leaned against it to like, you know, take the pressure off of standing up. And over the course of the, the few minutes that I was, uh, who, who knows how long it was, I actually lost my perception of the border between my skin and the stone. That the sense of the border like got, got obliterated by a sense of communion with it. And I, that, you know, that verb grok to grok, you know, where you actually, you get something on a, you, 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 you come to knowledge of something that's beyond the intellect. I grokked myself as a function of electricity. I understood of myself as, as being, being held together by this centripetal force of this electrical process that was going on holding, you know, making my cells cohere as it does with all matter, right? And, and as it does with the stone. And I actually understood myself to be a function of electricity in the same way that all other matter is. And to get that around 20, wow. to actually realize that, you know, all your ego trepidations and all the things you, you, you feel so bad about and scared of, and, you know, you know they don't go away but it pushed everything away to a degree where you go, Oh, you know, at the end of the day, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, you know, mm. that's really what's going on. And I, and I got that because I had the courage that night to drop acid with my wow. friend. So, yeah. I, uh, that's way better than mm. mine. My mine was when I was in medical school, uh, I've, I had this misconception that I guess I should know what some of these drugs feel like. So when I'm dealing with my patients, I know what it's all about. So yeah. for some reason, a friend of mine and I, uh, we, we split a quaalude because quaaludes were big back then, right? Yeah. Split a quaalude and then we went to a, a, to a, a disco. This was just how far back this was. And um, I remember we're riding on the bus going there and it's like, there's nothing. This, I don't know why these work. And then as soon as I got off the bus, I couldn't feel my <laughs> lips. And I'm like, oh man, that's weird. And I walk in and I don't remember anything else except about four hours later, waking up with my head against one of the disco speakers. And I had fallen asleep against the speaker. I couldn't hear for a week afterwards. Oh my God. And I was like, who wants to take this crap? Oh my God. Yeah, it was horrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was, that was my Quaalude uh, adventure. And I thought, you know what? I don't really need to know what these drugs do. Yeah. Uh, personally, I'll read about it, and that'll be that. It, yeah, was, yeah. Not, it was not eye-opening like your trip was, Seth. Mm. <laughs> but I can still hear okay now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, thank uh, God. Yeah, yeah. Well, in any case, this has been this has been really, really great. Yes, and we definitely want to do it again. And we we will be talking to you after we're done with this podcast about hopefully you being able to enlighten our audience through your writing as well either telling them which movies are meaningful to watch or just life experiences that people want to hear about as we're all, you know, moving towards that horizon together. Mm. So we really appreciate you doing this with us and like I said, we'll stay on afterwards, but this has been great. Oh yeah. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you so much. And again, I appreciate, I, I apologize for my long windedness, but uh, I do appreciate the chance to be able to talk to you guys a lot. No, no, this is, uh, this has been, it's been wonderful. It's so been thank great. you. Cool. All right. So awesome. Have a great rest of your day and enjoy. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Okay. Hi there. I'm John O'Hurley. 
During one of my spiritual journeys in the hinterlands of the Himalayas, I encountered a shaman who spoke only one word to me, Manopods. That simple utterance has tormented me ever since until I found Manopod, podcasts for men over 50, chock full of wit, wisdom, sex, health, sports, travel, and so much more. Give me a huzzah, and now my revelation is yours.